Leviticus 16. And I'd like for you to stand, if you would. And we want you to stand only for the reading of one scripture, but I want you to do this because the scripture that I read has something to do with a subject found in the Bible that is by far the superior subject of the entire Bible, and it deals with the blood of the Lord. Leviticus 16.30 For on the day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Let's read that once again. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. And I would like to preach today on the subject, the blood, the blood. I understand that your Sunday service is an evangelistic service, and I certainly appreciate this. I believe that all pastors should be an evangelist. Of course, I'm not an evangelist per se as far as calling is concerned. But in our church on Sunday, we always preach an evangelistic service. I encourage all of our Sunday school teachers to teach evangelistically. In our Sunday school classes this past year, in four classes alone downstairs outside of the adult class, I received a report from our Sunday school superintendent that 52 students had received the baptism of the Holy Ghost during the teaching sessions. Hallelujah. Praise God. Most of our people are baptized on Sunday morning because it is an evangelistic service. I wish that we had greater growth. This year, we were privileged to baptize close to 140 people in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I believe that God is doing something in these last days. Amen. I think, however, one of the hardest things to do is to correlate or structure some of your thinking relative to certain Bible subjects. And my intent today is to try, by the help of the Lord, to structure the blood into the plan of salvation. Now, this is a very difficult thing, but I think it's something that we all need. What I'd like for you to do before I bring to you the Word of God is pray for me. Would you bow your heads and do that right now? Praise God. Jesus, Lord, I love you, and I worship you, God, and I appreciate you, and I praise you, God, so much for being so good. Thank you, God, for this opportunity to preach concerning the blood. God, use me that I may open somebody's understanding. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Praise God. Oh, hallelujah. Glory to God. And you may be seated. The teaching of Leviticus 16, verse 30, is structured around the word atonement. 
Now the word atonement in our English simply means to cover. It also means in the Greek to cover. And then, of course, in the Hebrew, the same thing. The word atonement, as it has been translated in the English, in our Bible, appears 76 times in the Old Testament. 76 times in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the word atonement appears not quite so many times. And that may be very strange, but nevertheless it is true. It appears in the New Testament only one time. And that is in the book of Romans, the fifth chapter, verse 11. And I'd like for you to turn there, if you would. Romans 5, 11. <coughs> Romans 5, 11. The Scripture says, And not only so... But we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement. Now, in searching the scripture, I was real concerned about the fact that the word atonement appeared in the New Testament only in this one place. It appears to me that it should uh, be in quite a few number of the texts that were written concerning the blood, but nevertheless, it's not found there. My limited knowledge of Greek does not allow me to explore some of the words and phrases and such as deep as I would like. We do have a minister in our church who happens to be the director of our school who is very fluent in Greek. In fact, he can speak the Greek very fluently. And he can read from a Greek Bible. Now, I checked this word atonement out as it appears in the New Testament and asking Brother Rutherford also to help me. And I found out that the word translated atonement in Romans 5, 11 is translated from the very same word that appears twice in verse 10. And that is the word reconciled. Now, the word reconcile simply means to bring together, to create a bondness where there was a brokenness. As in the case of a husband and wife who have separated, they are reconciled when they are brought back together. So, the word atonement in the New Testament in Romans 5, 11 would be better translated, reconcile, or be brought back together. So the scripture is saying in Romans 5, 11, and not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received reconciliation, or we have been brought back to Him. Now, if my definition be correct, and as far as I can see it is, then it would eliminate the Old, Te- Old Testament teaching of atonement altogether in the New Testament. Now, I <clears throat> don't want this to be a real shocking thing to you. I think it's really a beautiful thing. So follow along with me in the Scripture. Now, the Hebrew word atonement, as found back in Leviticus, is taken from the Hebrew word 
kafar, K-A-P-H-A-R. It simply means to cover. It simply means to cover. That's all that it means. The word kafar first appears in Genesis, the 6th chapter, verse 14. And it's concerning the ark in which Noah built. The Bible says that he should pitch it within and pitch it without. Now, the word pitch there actually is kafar, to cover. Cover it on the outside and cover it on the inside. Now, <clears throat> the teaching then of Leviticus 30 is that the blood that was shed by an innocent animal was to take and cover the sin of a man. Now, there are some phrases that are used throughout the Bible that are very, very uh, wonderfully explained in the New Testament. But we will first cover some of those in the Old Testament. The word Passover, as it appears in the New Testament, also throughout the Old Testament, is really taken from the time in which Moses instructed all of Israel to take the blood of a lamb, an innocent lamb that was slain, and place the blood on the doorpost. Now the reason why that the blood was to go on the doorpost of all the Israelites is because God had chosen to send the death angel into the Egyptian villages. And when the death angel was to come into Egypt, when Egypt was about to suffer the consequences of their sin, the Bible says that they placed the blood there so that when the death angel came, he would pass over their household. And so throughout the history of the Jews, even until this day, they use the word Passover. It simply means that, that when the death angel looked down, he passed over. He turned his head away from where there should be judgment pronounced the blood of an innocent one caused the death angel to pass by or pass over or to turn his head and ignore what had happened in that household. Now, <clears throat> this is so very important for us to understand. In the Old Testament, I suppose the first sacrifice that was offered a blood sacrifice was offered by God himself. When Adam and Eve went out of the garden, the Bible says that the Lord took the coats of, or the skins rather, of animals. And he made coats for Adam and Eve and covered them. The next thing we find in the New Test, Old Testament is Cain and Abel offering up sacrifices. So evidently they got this idea from God. That God had taken an innocent animal and had slain it covered Adam and Eve with the skins and then used the blood as a covering of their sin. Now this is the only way that Adam and Eve could escape eternal damnation at that particular time. Because God had made the statement, the soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. So when God looked down upon Adam and Eve, He looked upon them and there was a covering of their sins that had been offered by an innocent animal. And God accepted that covering. Now, in the Old Testament, when a sacrifice was offered, if it was offered for an individual, we're not talking about all the sacrifices, some offered for the entire nation of Israel. But the teaching was that a man would bring his own sacrifice in. This had to be a perfect sacrifice, a lamb that was taken from his own 
tribe or his own flock. It had to be examined by the priest and declared to be purified. There was a time of exilement in which the animal was observed very carefully and then, of course, scrutinized by the priest. It could not have a blemish upon it. You and I, as we have been affected by medical science, we well understand that there was a time in which doctors and scientists thought that the life of an individual was in its heart. Later on, they changed it to say that life is in the brain. But in the last four or five years, scientists and biologists or doctors have come to the understanding that life is really in the blood. You know, the Bible taught us that a long, long time ago, that life was in the blood. Now, the direct opposite of death is life. And so, God took the substance of an innocent one that caused pulsation. And he collected that pulsation or that life and he placed it upon a soul that had sinned or the soul that was down to die. And so life covered death. So the man would bring in the sacrifice and his Cruel as it may sound, a knife was placed to the throat of that sacrifice and a man would place his hand upon that sacrifice. And somehow the man felt and trusted in God as the blood was collected that the sin went right out of his life into the innocent animal while its flesh was jerking and quivering. And while he was gasping for breath and trying to escape death, Death was inedible as a result of the priest's knife. The blood, however, that was collected, was collected to cover that man's sin. And he went away with a deep appreciation that God, for one more year, would overlook the sin that he had committed. And so that judgment would be withheld from him from that day until the sacrifice was to be offered again. Now... I want to drop the subject just for a moment and cover something else that I appreciate so very much. When Jesus Christ came upon the scene, the word church was first mentioned by our Lord in the book of Matthew, the 18th chapter. The Bible tells us, Thou art Peter, upon this rock I build my church. Now the word church comes from the Greek word ecclesia, which means called out ones. Now, there are certain words in the New Testament that are very hard for us to correlate. Now, we can explain all these words and phrases individually, but sometimes it's hard to put them all together or dovetail them together or mesh them together in such a way that we fully understand what the Scripture is teaching. One is like justification and sanctification. What is the difference? Righteousness and holiness. What is the difference? And today I attempt in the short period of time in which I choose to preach to you to explain some of these terms to you. Now, the word church means ecclesia are called out ones. When we hear about the church today, that simply means that God has called us out of a world of sin and holiness, uh, or uh, sin and iniquity, and called us into righteousness and holiness. Amen. Now, we wonder concerning the word holiness. I think the word holiness can be taken from an example or can be understood 
as we read an example found in the book of Acts. Now in Acts the 10th chapter, the apostle Peter was down at Joppa and he was praying. And the Bible tells us that he was praying on the housetop of one Simon. Now the scripture tells us that, that as he prayed that God had taken a great sheet, knit on four corners and let it down out of heaven. And of course as Peter observed this, he being an orthodox Jew, he being very devout to the law, he saw that there were animals of all kinds and they were placed upon that sheet. And when he wondered in amazement, the voice of the Lord spoke out of him and said, Peter, arise, kill and eat. Peter rose, but when he arose, he said, not so, Lord, for my lips have never touched anything that is common or unclean. And then, of course, the sheet went back up into the heavens, and once again, it came back down. Peter was back down praying. The Lord said, Peter, arise, kill and eat. He said, not so, Lord, for my lips have never touched anything that is common or unclean. The third time this appeared out of the heavens. Now, sometimes we think that Peter was a stubborn individual. He wouldn't accept what the Lord had said. No, this was a really a change from the law to grace. It was a change actually of doctrine. That's right. And the Bible says, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. God never rebuked Peter for questioning what he had seen. He, he was wanting to make sure, Peter was wanting to make sure that what he saw was from the Lord. And so down it came the third time. The Lord said, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, Not so, Lord, for my lips have never touched anything that is common or unclean. God then spoke to him and said, Peter, what God has cleansed, let no man call it common or unclean. Right. And holiness is the condition that is created as a result of a cleansing that takes place inside by God. Right. Now, an example of what we're saying is this. In the Old Testament, if you read in the book of Daniel, you'll find a man by the name of Belshazzar. Belshazzar took, and on a great feast day of the Babylonians, he took some of the vessels from his father his grandfather's uh, trophy cabinet and he brought them into his great feast. Now these vessels were golden vessels that had been set aside or sanctified and that's what the word sanctified means and placed in the temple of God at Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar when he overran Jerusalem collected these vessels, brought them back, put them in his trophy case. Nebuchadnezzar is dead, his son arises, he dies, and now Belshazzar, the grandson, is now the king. And when he is drinking and feasting and defiling, he thinks of the golden vessels. And so he goes back and takes those vessels out of his grandfather's closet or wherever he kept them and brings them in. And he then fills those vessels with wine and makes a toast to the God of the Babylonians. It was at this time that the hand appeared and began to write on the wall. Many, many to Kel Euphorison. That is to say, this day thy kingdom has been divided. And of course we know that what happened was that that very night Belshazzar was killed by the Medes and the Persians because he defiled the vessels that were taken from that temple spot. 
Now, why would God's judgment rest upon the Babylonians as a result? Because, you see, God had cleansed those vessels and set those vessels aside for the purpose of worship. For the, for the pur- they had been dedicated. And God was not a, about to allow a heathen king to desecrate that which he had cleansed. These were holy vessels. They were not common vessels. Why? Because God had placed his power. God had placed his hand upon them. Now the teaching of the New Testament is that we're vessels of the Lord. Praise God. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Ghost. The The Bible says, If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For God loveth the holy temple, which temple you are. And the reason why that the judgments of God will rest upon the individual that desecrates his own body is because that one day God had touched him and cleansed him and purified him. And the condition then was a holy condition. And he was righteous with his acts and with his deeds. And to go back and desecrate that which God has consecrated will certainly bring the judgments of the Lord upon an individual. And so what God was saying is, Peter, these animals that I'm asking you to kill and I'm asking you to eat, Please understand that when I touch them, they may have been unclean in the past, but they're not unclean anymore because the hand of God rests upon them, so they're not common anymore. You see, the church can never be called the common ones. They may be the peculiar ones, but they're not the common ones. Why? Because they were called out of a world that was common. Praise God. And so the church today is the pure, righteous, holy a spouse virgin that's waiting for the bridegroom to come back. Praise God. Amen. Thank God. Hallelujah. Now, let's go back to our subject of atonement. Now, in the New Testament, the word atonement does not appear as it does in the Old Testament, but certainly the word blood appears time and time and time again. In this Bible study, I'd like to choose to read from First John, the third chapter, um, Verse 4, 1 John 3, verse 4, Whosoever committeth sin transgresses against the law. For sin is a transgression against the law. Now the Bible tells us that whatever God says, that is His law. And for us to transgress or disobey what God has told us to do is sin. Sin is a transgression against the law. Verse 5, And you know... That ye were manifest, and you know that he, rather, was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Now, Peter explains it like this. He said, we're redeemed with, we're not redeemed, rather, with corruptible things as gold and silver, but by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So throughout the New Testament, the word blood does appear, but the word atonement does not appear. You may say, Brother Grant, are you saying that you do not believe in the atonement in the New Testament? That's exactly what I'm saying. Exactly what I'm saying. You may say, oh, now that would almost be blaspheming. No, there's something more beautiful than that. You see, when Jesus Christ came upon the scene, His name shall be called Emmanuel, for He shall save His people from their sins. Praise God. When John the Baptist introduced the Christ that came upon the scene, He said, Behold the Lamb of God that covers the sins of the world. No, he did not say, Behold the Lamb of God that covers the sins of the world. He was not talking about atonement. He was not talking about blood that was no more powerful than the blood of an innocent animal. 
He was talking about blood that was able to reach down and touch the heart of a man that was full of sin and iniquity and do more than key for it, cover it, or seal it. But he was able to take it away. Oh, hallelujah. Praise God. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews, the ninth chapter, verse 22, that that, uh, the blood of bulls and goats was not capable of taking away sin. But the blood that was shed by the Lord Jesus Christ was able to do more than just cover. It was able to do more than atone. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Praise God, praise God, praise God. You see, God's blood is able to do. Christ's blood is able to do more than the blood of a bull. It's able to do more than the blood of a turtle dove or a pigeon. It's able to do more than the blood of an innocent lamb. Friend, it's able to reach down inside of our hearts and it's able to take it completely away. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise God, praise God. Without the shedding of blood, there is no... Remission, not covering, but no remission of sins. Praise God, praise God. Now as we go on, the story gets more beautiful. I'd like you to turn to 1 John, the 5th chapter, verse 7. We want to talk about the blood and the importance it plays in New Testament salvation. 1 John, verse 5, 1 John 5, rather, verse 7 is a scripture that some theologians argue is not in the Word of God, the original text. I'll not deal with that subject, but we will take 1 John 7, 1 John 5, 7, and 8, and we want to talk about that just for a moment. 1 John 5, verse 7, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are three. No, the Bible says these three are one. Praise God. Of course, I believe very strongly that Jesus Christ was a visible manifestation of the invisible God. That's why His name was Jesus. You see, when Mary and Joseph saw that Mary was to have a child, they didn't go someplace to a local store and buy a book and sit down and choose a name for Him like parents do today. The angel appeared from heaven and first appeared unto Joseph and told him, Now this is what I want His name to be. Praise God. You see, God named him and gave him a name that was above every name. For to that name every knee shall bow, and to that name every tongue shall confess. The reason why that his name was Jesus is because he was to save. Praise God. Jesus was the Savior. He was Jehovah of the Old Testament, becoming flesh and blood among us today. In fact, Jesus actually means Jehovah Salvation, Jehovah Redeemer. The unseen God of the Old Testament was to make himself visible in sonship or in a robe of flesh and walk among us. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. The Bible says he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. We back back up to the first chapter of John, and we find such a beautiful, beautiful story. But we back up to Luke's uh, uh, description of Jesus Christ and, and we look at his genealogy and we find a beautiful description of Jesus. We back all the way back up to Matthew and look at his genealogy and we find a beautiful description of Jesus. Matthew connects Jesus Christ to Abraham and David and says that, that by rights he is the son of the Jews. When Luke brings about uh, the genealogy of Jesus, he goes all the way past 
uh, Adam, uh, I say Adam, he goes all the way past David and he goes uh, uh, past Abraham and he connects him to Adam and Eve, that Jesus Christ was really the son of man. But when John begins to give the genealogy of Jesus, he goes past David, he goes past Adam, and he backs all the way back up as far as his mind can conceive the beginning of time. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not made anything that was made. He was in the world. He goes on to say, the world was made by Him, and yet the world knew Him not. And what John is saying is that Jesus Christ is more than the son of Abraham. Jesus Christ is more than the son of man. But he says Jesus Christ is the son of the everlasting God that had no beginning and will have no end. And he connects Jesus Christ to that. Praise God, praise God, praise God. Now, these three are one. You see, God as a spirit was in heaven while Jesus was here on earth. And yet Jesus was also, or God was also in Jesus. The Bible says the fullness of God was in Jesus. Now the fullness does not denote quantity, it denotes quality. All of God's divine attributes were in Jesus Christ. When Jesus ascended into the heavens, the Bible says that he sat on the right hand of the throne of God. Now the right hand of the throne of God was a, a Jewish figure of speech that simply means that Jesus had all power. Now, we know that to be correct because if you read in the book of Revelation, the Bible says there is one that sits upon the throne. Now, let's just say for a moment that this is a throne room. And all of a sudden, Jesus ascends into the heavens. And here is a throne. Well, you see, the, the Spirit is there. Jesus comes and sits right on the throne, in the midst of the throne. He wasn't sitting in anybody's lap because God, as Creator, was not person.
What are those three? The Bible says the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Now, let's talk about something in earth. In earth, the Bible says, there are three that bear record, bear witness in earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. Now notice the word is changed, the wording is changed here. These three agree in one. Now when you read in the New Testament concerning salvation, you read a lot about the Spirit. You read a whole lot about the water, and you read a whole lot about the blood. Now Jesus said, except a man be born of water and of spirit, he can not enter into the kingdom of God. And brothers and sisters, I don't care how closely you look at that commandment, the word cannot contains no loopholes. It is just the way that it is. Well, now some people say, well, now uh, the, the, the water baptism is not referring to being born of the water. Naturally, I would say that you would be correct if we didn't have any other scripture but that one. But you see, we have other scriptures throughout the New Testament. It is not a secret. The apostles, every place they went, they talked to people about the gospel. The gospel was Christ's death, His burial, and His resurrection. He was the God that brought salvation to His people. He was born of a virgin. He lived a life. And after he had completed his ministry, when the fullness of time was come, he was nailed to the cross. Praise God. And there he shed his blood and died. He was placed in a barred tomb. And after three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, he raised, came forth triumphantly over death, hell, and the grave. And the apostles, every place they went, they preached the gospel. Jesus Christ died. He was buried and he arose. The apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1 through 6 that the gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection. He said we're saved by that gospel. Christ died. Christ was buried and he arose. Now, when the apostles preached the gospel, people want to know what must I do to be saved? Now, the thing about it is when they ask that question, Peter on the day of Pentecost will start there. He said, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name, in the name, in the name of the Lord Jesus. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Praise God. And what he was doing, he's taking the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Christ died, he was buried, and he arose again. And he was applying that gospel to each man's life. You see, it's more than just a story that's told on Easter. Jesus Christ died so that you can die. The Bible says we were crucified with him. What do you mean so that I can die, Pastor Grant? So that all the sin of our heart can be mortified, killed, and nailed to the cross with the Lord Jesus Christ. We do that when we repent. That's what repentance is all about. It's a clearing. It's a killing of mortal desires and lust and corruption that sets in the human body. And just as Christ's lifeless body was taken and placed in a tomb, the Apostle Paul says in Romans the 6th chapter, he says, what shall we do? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He said, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know you not that so many of us who were baptized unto Jesus Christ was baptized unto his death. Therefore, we are buried with him in baptism that like as Christ was raised from the dead, so shall we also rise to newness of life. He was preaching the gospel to those people and letting them understand exactly what they had adhered to already. Christ died and he was buried and he arose and the old man of sin is mortified in repentance 
the old man is taken then and planted together in the likeness of his burial. And then a new man comes forth in newness of life. Now, Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, I give you no sign except this sign. As Jonas was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What they were saying, give us a sign. In other words, that we may know that you're God. And what Jesus was saying, the sign of Jonas being three days and three nights in the heart of earth, the earth, or in the belly of the whale, as it correlates with me being three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, then this is the only sign that you need. In other words, Jonas was a man who was running from God and he went down to Joppa and there he bought himself a ticket and he went down into the boat and when he went down into the boat the Bible says he went down into the bottom of the boat and then when his sin was revealed he was taken out and then he was cast into the sea the Bible says he went down into the sea and a big whale came by and swallowed him up and then he went down into the belly of the whale you see that's a pattern of sin it's always degrading it's always downward it'll take you a million miles away from happiness and peace it'll separate you from family and friends. Friend, it'll break up homes and cause corruption to set in. After a while, you go down and you go down and you go down and you go down and you go down. And here the Bible says, in hell he lifted up his eyes. That's talking of Jonah. And what did Jonah do? He began to repent. That's exactly what he did. And friend, when he began to repent, the old whale that held him began to get sick. And then he brought him up and it cast him out on the sea. I'm here to tell you, when Jonah came out of the belly of the whale on the seaside, friend, he wiped himself of his slime. He was a changed man with a changed idea. And he went down to Nineveh to preach the gospel of the living Lord. You see, that sign of Jonas was a sign of a new birth. And Jesus Christ says, the world needs no better sign than the sign of a new birth. When a man repents of his sins, goes down in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and buries the old corruptible nature and comes up a changed man, delivered from his sin and iniquity. The world needs no greater sign than that sign. Hallelujah, hallelujah. That's a sign we need. Praise God, I say that's a sign that we need. Amen. And you see the apostles when they preach, they re- preach repentance, baptism, in what name? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ Jesus. and the infilling of the gift of the Holy Ghost. Every place they went. Place. Now the scripture says there are three that bear record or bear witness in the earth. The spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. Now if you take a careful look in the New Testament concerning the water, you will find that baptism, even though it is a burial, it's also a birth. An old man goes down, a new man is born. The scripture tells us concerning this particular birth, it is an answer, First Peter 3.21, of a good conscience. I'd like you to just turn there and read that if you would. First Peter 3.21. For the sake of some of you who have not studied this particular subject or are not familiar with the scriptures, we will read it. The light figure wherein to even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if you read carefully in your New Testament, you will find the Bible says, the light figure wherein to even baptism doth also now save us. Does baptism save us? The scripture tells us that it saves us. Now, that's a very strange thing that the Scripture would say that it saves us if it really doesn't. Now, let me show you something else in the Scripture. If you turn back to Acts, the fourth chapter, and this is a Scripture 
that I'm sure that anybody here could quote Acts the fourth chapter. I've got so many markers in my Bible, I'm going to have to discard all of them. Acts the fourth chapter, verse twelve. The Bible says, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among us, given among men, whereby we must be saved. Now, the Scripture tells us that the name of Jesus Christ saves us. Does it? It sure does. Over here, it says that baptism saves us. Then what does save us? Now, the Bible says that baptism is an answer of a good conscience. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews, the ninth chapter then. And we'll really confuse you here. Hebrews, the ninth chapter, verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve a living God? The Bible here tells us that the blood is the answer of a good conscience. Now, if baptism saves us, and the name of Jesus Christ saves us, and baptism gives us a good conscience then the blood gives us a good conscience. There must be a correlation of all of these. You see, that's why John says these three agree in one. You see, when a man takes his life that has been wrecked and ruined and submits it to God, when this man fully repents, he takes and kills the sin of his life. But killing of the sin of a man's life is not good enough alone. He must then go and bury or remove. Baptism was for the remission of sin. Now, some people come and tell me, don't you know that forgiveness forgiveness and remission are taken from the very same Greek word? I'm very well aware of that. However, the context in which the two subjects are differentiated cannot be ignored. The very fact that the Bible explains that when a man repents, he mortifies the sin of his life. When he is baptized, he removes the old man. We cannot ignore that. And so... Here's a man who has asked for forgiveness. He's dead to sin. He's cleansed his heart as far as the killing. But we take dead men and we don't just throw them out on the sidewalk. We don't leave them sitting in pews. We remove them. We bury them. And so when a man goes in the baptismal tank and he goes down in the lovely name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you see the name of Jesus Christ called upon him is absolutely essential. Why? Because it identifies the blood that actually takes away the sin. It is the blood of Jesus Christ. And the name identifies the blood. Do you know why my name is Grant? Because that identifies the bloodline from which I came from. And Jesus Christ's name was used in baptism because it identified the blood that was to take away the sin or remove the old man. Praise God. And so baptism, the water, a man goes down. H2O, the physical components of water, or the chemical components of water, are not powerful enough, friend, to take away sin. It is a sign or a symbol of the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. As certainly we do it in obedience, and we must do it in obedience, because it's there in which the blood is applied that takes away the sin. Why? So that our temples are clean and, and consecrated and set aside and set apart. We're the ecclesia now, the called out ones, the ones that God has touched and says, these are not common. They're not unclean. And then when we come up out of the water, we can lift our hands and His Spirit floods us and we receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. 
Praise God. These three agree in one. Praise God. Now, if you don't get the agreement and the correlation of some Bible subjects, you're going to have a real mixed up and confused mind. This is why some people believe that all you have to do to be saved, just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. One man told me believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is salvation. He asked me if I believe that. I said, no, I don't believe that. I think believing on the Lord Jesus Christ will bring salvation. But believing is something that I personally do. And friend, I can't be my own redeemer. Salvation is the gift of God. And the gift of God is not, not, not denoting a gift from God. It means God to you. God gives himself to you. That's salvation. That's why we say he lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me a long life's narrow way. He goes on to say, you ask me how I know he lives? Praise God. What does the rest of it say? Praise God. He lives within my heart. Oh, hallelujah. I say he lives within my heart. Praise God. And he came into my heart as a personal friend, redeemer. As a result of my believing on him. Praise God. Now, I'll throw something in here for good measure to some of you who do not know that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now, Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a man that he told, you must be born again. Now, Please keep in mind, the word believeth here in John 3.16 is taken from a Greek word phistio, which actually means to trust and obey. Now for an example, in Acts 5.32, in Acts 5.32, the Bible says, And we are his witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. Now, obey him is taken from this very same Greek word phistio that's found also in John 3.16. This same phrase is found in Hebrews 5, 9, phistio, which means, or let's read Hebrews 5, 9 then. Praise God. Oh, hallelujah. Listen, the word of God is powerful. Hebrews, the fifth chapter, verse 9. Hebrews 5, verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. The same Greek word is found here that's found in Acts 5.32 and John 3.16. This may also surprise you, but the word, is, the word is actually translated trust and obey many more times than it's translated believeth. You may say, well, pastor, are you saying that if you don't believe that we should believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? I definitely believe that. I definitely believe that. But believe, see, is not a passive word. It demands an object. What is the object of your belief? The Bible says, He, Noah, being warned of God, prepared an ark for the saving of his household. The Bible says he was moved with fear. He acted in faith to the commandment of God. And listen, friend, if building an ark isn't obedience and works, I don't know what it is. The Bible never condemns works. It condemns dead works. That's works that are done mechanically and without a personal faith in them and without a personal faith in God. Oh, praise God, praise God. I must move on. There is a subject in the New Testament that intrigued me so very much, and it was a subject of justification. I wondered about justification, and then there's another kindred subject, and that is sanctification. Justification, sanctification, and holiness are all kindred subjects. And for my own personal satisfaction, I wanted to put them 
in their proper place. I found out that in sanctification, sanctification is actually taken from a Greek word which means just as if. Isn't that strange? Justification, just as if. And I began to look in that and I began to wonder what the scripture was saying, just as if. And when we looked in the scripture, we found out that when the Bible says that we're justified by faith, when we act in faith and obedience to God and our sins are taken away, He makes us just as if we had never sinned. You see, in justification, Christ died for us. Now, in sanctification, sanctification in the New Testament is a subject that's taught, means separation. But sanctification is explained more properly in Romans 12, verse 1 and 2 than any scripture that I can define, and it does not even contain the word sanctification. Sanctification is explained by the Apostle Paul like this. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the changing or by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Justification is when Christ died for us. Sanctification is when we dedicate ourselves to Him, even to the point of dying for Him. Praise God. In justification, he died for us. In sanctification, we die for him. Now, I'd like for you, in closing today, to turn with me to Romans, the third chapter. And there is a subject here dealing with appeasement that I feel that we need to cover. Romans, the third chapter. Romans 3, verse 25. The scripture says, whom God has sent forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Notice this, forbearance of God. Notice the word propitiation is found there. Verse 24, let's back up. I say verse 24, verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Now the word propitiation, as well as I can see, is actually taken from a particular thought that the Apostle Paul used from the practices of the heathens. Now, it appears that the practices of the heathens had come from the Word of God. Men can deviate from the Word of God. And over a period of time, they're doing things that are not structured according to the Word of God. But the heathens would take an innocent child, preferably the firstborn of theirs, And they would take that perfect baby, that innocent baby. The heathens believed that because that they had sinned, that every now and then their God would come and hover over their villages. And when their God looked down upon their sin, He looked down upon their sin with wrath. He was ready to destroy them because they were sinners. And they would take an innocent child and they would slit its throat, collect its blood... And they would put it out in pots and cups so that their gods could see it. So that their angry God, whose wrath had been kindled, 
would be appeased. And he would look down and he saw their earnestness and sincerity. And the fact that they did not want judgment and that they wanted to be saved. And their God would turn his head and ignore their sin and go away. Periodically they would do that. Now what the Apostle Paul is saying, he says, now I want you to look at what happened. He said, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is no question about it. The judgments of God are sure. For the Bible says, the soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. An atonement in the Old Testament, it worked for their particular day. But when the fullness of time had come, the fullness of time, friend, is not dealing with a date. It's dealing with a condition. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, or made of a woman, born of the law. When God looked down and saw that the world could no longer exist without a Redeemer, that its corruption was so great that the atonement could not even cover it. He looked down upon the world and saw that the world was to be destroyed and a decision had to be made. The decision that God made was, I will visit my people and shed my own blood through my son Jesus Christ. To thwart the anger that's kindled against sin. And so Jesus Christ walked a very lonely trail one day. And Jesus went up on the cross. And there he shed his blood. The whole sign of the cross is a sign of forgiveness. Such a beautiful, beautiful thing. Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane and prayed that prayer in which he humbled himself even to death. When he walked down that valley that led outside of the garden of Gethsemane, he was betrayed by a kiss from one of his own. Then we see the crowd as they came, the soldiers. Peter took out his sword. And in a fit of anger, he went after one of the men that he thought was coming after Jesus. And he cut off the man's ear. He actually meant to cut his head off, friend. But the man perhaps dodged and Peter just got his ear. While Peter was wrestling around trying to kill the man, our Lord and Savior was down parting the grass trying to find his ear. And he found his ear. He went over and put it back up on the soldier. And he told Peter, he said, Peter, put up your sword, for they that live by the sword shall also perish by the sword. When Jesus hangs suspended between heaven and earth, there's one cry there in the New Testament that I shall never forget. None of us will ever forget it, even when our mortal bodies have been transposed and become immortal. The phrase is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. A God whose wrath had been kindled against sin, a world that could no longer stand without a Redeemer, is now experiencing blood that was shed to do more than cover for him, but to take it away. April 15th, 1961, on a Sunday morning, I made my way to the altar. When I found God, or when God found me, I weighed less than 120 pounds. I had a stomach ulcer. I was dying. My skin had turned yellow. I had big ulcers all over my skin. I went to my job. I had to miss more work than what I was privileged to work. My thermos bottle was filled with Maalox. I had tablets in my pocket all the time. 
I was a sick individual. But I came down to the altar and I knelt on my knees. You see, the reason why that I was experiencing what I was experiencing was because that God looked down upon my life. He's a sinner. He's doomed for hell and he turned it to a lake of fire because God is holy and he can't tolerate sin. But I knelt down that day and I said, Jesus, please forgive me. Oh, I felt such a peace come over me. They took me and baptized me in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, God filled me with the gift of the Holy Ghost. April 15th, 1961, I walked out of that Pentecostal church in Henderson, Texas. And I went straight down to my mom and dad's place. The next Sunday was to be their wedding anniversary and they were to be out of town. So the church had prepared a large barbecue for them out in their front yard underneath tall whispering pines. It's warm in April in Texas. And I got in the line and I filled my plate up with barbecue chicken. And there were people who looked at me and said, John, I didn't think you could eat. Jesus came that I might be made whole. I believe the Bible. And I walked through that line and I filled my plate up. You see, when God looked down upon my life, His wrath was kindled against me. It was ready for my destruction. The fullness of time had come. The condition was ripe for me to die. The world didn't need John Grant because it was a menace to society. I told filthy jokes. Taught other people how to sin. My example was terrible. I was teaching people the way of iniquity. I was teaching my own children how to be sinners. For the sin of their iniquities transferred to the third and the fourth generation to them that don't know the Lord. I was imputing it into my wife. And God looked down and said, No, I can't tolerate this. But friend, that April day, when his blood was applied, he looked down in amazement. And where there was a frown, and where there was a wrath, now there was a smile, now there was appeasement. For John Grant was just as if he had never sinned. Just as if justified. Lift your hands, would you, right now and praise Him. All of you, all of you need to be thankful for justification, for the blood. And exchange it someday. For a crown on a hill far away stood an old Would you stand as you sing page 33? The emblem of suffering and shame and I love 
that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a cross On either side of the pulpit there is a place to kneel and pray If the Lord has talked to your heart today about your sin, this is a good time for you to step out and come and repent of your sins. Who'd like to be the first one to step out and come and give your heart to God? Hallelujah. Oh, praise God. Come on right now, would you?